You're listening to the Mission Church Podcast. Each message comes from our Sunday morning gatherings where we worship in community, study God's Word, and grow in our faith together to the glory of Jesus Christ. The Mission Church is committed to helping each person belong and believe and to equip them to embrace the call of God upon their life. We pray these messages will build your faith and encourage you today. If you have a Bible or on your phones, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 1 through 20 this morning. Kind of take it section by section. But before we get into the text this morning, I want to ask you a question. And you don't have to shout it out loud. I just want you to think in your own brain, what do you want for Christmas? What do you want for Christmas? I was looking at some Christmas statistics, and Americans will spend anywhere on average between $1,000 and $1,500 on Christmas this year. The median wage for Americans is less than $1,000 a week. Over 40% of Americans will go into debt buying Christmas gifts. And our national average of spending money on Christmas gifts has now surpassed $1 trillion. That's outrageous. Do you know how many zeros that is? Some of you who are like math majors are like, yeah, I do. It's, It's 12. I had to look it up. Here are the top three gifts according to Google. Apple AirPods Pro. Anybody had that on their Christmas list? Nice, young adults, love it. Number two, Nintendo Switch. Nancy McDermott raised her hand, pretty sure. And then number three, the Keurig K Mini plus coffee maker. Anybody have that on their list? Now, how many of you are so spiritual you've renounced all Christmas gifts? Well done, well done. Well, there's nothing wrong with giving or receiving gifts. It's not to be a guilt trip when we get gifts or we want gifts. But have you ever put something on your Christmas list that you haven't received? Can you go back into your childhood and maybe a a letter that you wrote to Santa or something that you asked from your parents and you didn't get it? What did it feel like not to get that on Christmas morning? You can shout out at this point. It's okay. (laughs) Some people are shouting out the gifts they didn't get. It's not even the feelings. Like they still remember. Sometimes it makes us feel disappointed. Or maybe it runs deeper like we feel unloved or unimportant. Or maybe it runs so deep that we feel like we deserved a specific gift. But we didn't get it. And here's the reality of our sinful nature. Our flesh wants peace by material prosperity. Our flesh wants peace by material prosperity. The reality is we long for possessions. We long for money. We long for comfortability. We want a vacation to bring us some peace of mind. We want some quiet from the kids so that we can just sit and relax and do nothing. 
the way that we seek joy is often through getting something that will make us temporarily happy, no question. But the problem is, is it isn't lasting. And for a country that is spending over $1 trillion a year on Christmas gifts, it's amazing to consider that although economically different, Jesus' day, the people still desired the same thing. They wanted economic prosperity. They wanted money in their accounts. They wanted peace within their country. And during Jesus' birth, we see an interesting thing happening within the known world. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 3 says this. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. What I love about the Christmas story is there's so much history attached to it. It's not just a Bible story where you're like, well, I'm not really sure if that actually happened or not. How many of you have ever heard of Caesar Augustus? All of us has heard of Caesar Augustus. Um, As a matter of fact, this specifically was Caesar Augustus, also named Octavian. And he was the very first emperor of Rome who was leading Rome when Jesus was born. And just to give you a little backstory about who Octavian was, um, he did not come from a royal family, but he did come from a very well-to-do family that was rising in power in Rome. His biological father was a senator, but more importantly than that is his adopted father was Julius Caesar. And when Julius was murdered, who murdered Julius, by the way? Brutus. I'm surprised nobody said it in like an accent. Me too, Brute. He was murdered by Brutus. That's when Octavian began to rise to power. Rome had been a republic up to this time. And it was fraught with war. When Rome lost Julius Caesar, there began to be this power struggle and they developed something called a triumvirate, which is where they basically divided the Roman Empire into three different parts and allowed three different men or generals to really rule over the entire Roman Empire. And what ended up happening is these rulers were fighting constantly and it was tearing the country apart, not just by war and death, but their economy was shattered. Their prosperity had been nullified. Men were going off to battle and not returning. There was instability with the government. People were in disarray. And when Octavian or Caesar Augustus comes on the scene, he is a very peculiar character who rises to power through everything from marrying for allegiance and then divorcing marrying again for pleasure. He was a political person who was clawing for power. He was making promises that he couldn't keep. He even made an alliance with his good friend, Mark Antony. And if you know anything about Mark Antony, Mark Antony had teamed up with Cleopatra. 
And it was Cleopatra and Mark Antony who tried to overthrow Octavian, and yet Octavian was able to kind of hem their ships into a harbor, destroy their naval fleet, and eventually pinned Mark Antony and Cleopatra in such a place where they both took their own life, and Octavian was left as the sole ruler of the Roman Empire. He got there by murder. He got there by politicking. He was raised up into power through pulling himself up by his own bootstraps and using people to step on. The reason why I want us to take a look just for a moment at Caesar, Augustus, or Octavian is isn't it interesting that the first emperor of Rome is reigning when Jesus Christ, the creator of the universe, the God and king of all is born. And we're going to see a tremendous contrast between the ruler of the known world and then the king of the universe who came with such humility. During his reign, we see that Caesar Augustus declared or decreed a census should be taken. Uh, Why would you declare a census if you are the leader of Rome? For what purpose? For money. For money, Um, you take a census to know how many people you should expect to get tax dollars from. And this is something that Octavian was doing. And we see that this is a specific time period in history. Between 6 BC and 4 AD, the census was being taken. And we know that even outside of the Bible... When it comes to Caesar Augustus or when it even comes to what verse 2 tells us that Quirinius was reigning or governing in Syria at this time, we know that historians known as Josephus, Tacitus, and even Caesar Augustus himself confirms that Quirinius was the governor. All that to say this was a real story in history that isn't just biblically founded, but you could find in history books or textbooks anywhere in a public school system. These were real people at a real time. And this is the story of the birth of Jesus. Verse 4. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. Because there was no room for them in the inn. It's amazing to me that unbeknownst to Caesar Augustus, God moves his heart and mind at just the right time to take a census in which the way a census was taken in the ancient world is that all people would return to their ancestral towns. And for Joseph, being an ancestor of who? King David. Joseph had to return to what town? Do you see the sovereign hand of God at work? 
What I love about his sovereignty is that it extends far beyond the church. Oftentimes we can get caught up in our own world of thinking, well, we pray within this space or within our devotional time or within the Christian community and God moves and he answers prayers. But do not think for one second that he does not have complete authority over every heart, soul and mind. And even the most powerful ruler in the world at that time, Octavian, Caesar Augustus, God moves him to take a census in order to fulfill prophecy that the Savior, Christ the Lord, would be born in Bethlehem. Look at Micah chapter 5 verse 2. This is the prophet Micah who wrote hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Let's all read this together on the screen. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah. Yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. God had prophesied hundreds of years before that the Messiah, the Savior, the Christ, would be born in Bethlehem. God is moving Caesar in order to accomplish his purpose. And here's also what I love. Mary and Joseph, they think they're simply taking part in what? A census. Who knew that paying your taxes and filling out the census card could be part of God's will for all mankind? This is not a government message sponsored by anybody. But here's what it reminds me of. I want to see God move in miraculous ways. How many of you want to see a revival in your community or in this country? Yeah, amen, we do. We want to see God heal people. We want to see God move mightily. And yet oftentimes we forget that he is at work in the mundane things of our life, including filling out census forms and paying our taxes. Because that's how much his sovereignty extends into our lives. That even the small things that we do on a daily basis, God can use that to bring people to him. Do not discount your boring weeks. Do not fret at, oh, here I am with the kids again. The same conversation. Keep having it. Keep pursuing their hearts. Oh my goodness, my marriage, we're back at this place. We're having the same argument 50 different ways. Keep fighting for your marriage. Amen. God is at work in the small things. And yet we often mistake that he only moves in big ways. And yet we see here, God was simply moving through a census and taxes to bring about his perfect will that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Now it's interesting to me that God can move the heart of Caesar Augustus, that he could prophesy hundreds of years before Jesus was born about where he would be born, and yet he couldn't get Mary and Joseph a what? A hotel room. An Airbnb, a Vecasa, 
a connection with someone of someone who at least had a room. Like God, you moved Caesar to take a census, but you can't get Mary and Joseph a room? And yet we know that it's not because he couldn't. It's because God wouldn't. This is an amazing display of his character. God does not use his power in order to benefit himself throughout the life of Jesus Christ. Have you ever thought about this? That Jesus lived in humanity like we did, except without sin. But that means as he grew as a child, when he fell down and broke a bone, or when he scraped his knee, or when he got sick, he didn't just zap himself into perfection. He endured it. When mom and dad said, hey, you need to go clean out the stable, he didn't just snap his fingers and magically there was fresh hay and no poop left. He put in the work. Never once did Jesus use his own power to benefit himself. He only used his power to serve others in order to point them to himself as the Messiah and King. And here's what I want to encourage you in this morning. God doesn't waste our pain and problems. God doesn't waste our pain and problems. Practically speaking, think about this situation. Mary and Joseph have traveled from Nazareth to Bethlehem. It's over 70 miles and it may have been even longer because they probably would not have cut through Samaria. And it would have taken them anywhere from seven to 10 days. Mary is late in her third trimester. You just try to go to the grocery store with your wife who's that pregnant and it's difficult and you get to take a vehicle. Imagine that poor woman on a donkey for 70 plus miles. How uncomfortable for Mary. And by the time they get to Bethlehem, not only has it been a difficult journey, but there's no room for them in any hotel. There's no room for them to stay in an inn. And it comes time for Mary to give birth to Jesus. And the only place that they can find is where? Is a stable. How frustrating for Joseph as the leader of his household going, man, I can't even get my wife into a room. How frustrating for Mary and how uncomfortable for her to have to be shoveling out hay or to be cleaning up a stall in order to give birth to a baby. For those of you who don't like germs, how unsanitary. <laughs> For those of us who are all about fairness, how is this fair? But this doesn't just extend to this story, does it? How often in my own life or in your life do you go, God, what the heck? I go to church on a regular basis. I don't cuss. I don't smoke. I don't drink. I don't have sex outside of marriage. I'm a relatively good person. I walk nice little old ladies across the street. I tithe. I'm good to my family. And these are the circumstances that you're going to let me endure? Do you see how narrow our focus can become when it's all about me? When it's all about me. Now, 
Now, I wouldn't have blamed Joseph and Mary had that been their thought process. But here's what I love when we back up and look at the bigger picture. God was literally moving heaven and earth in order to rescue and save billions of people. Billions of souls. Billions of men and women lost in darkness, separated from God because of their sin leading to eternal death. And in my own life, I can get so caught up in, this just isn't fair. God, you owe me something different. I've been good. And it starts to give us a vision of what we've been taught about Santa Claus, doesn't it? If you're good, you'll get what? If you're not, you'll get what? Which is not true in our culture. If you're good, you get presents. If you're bad, you get what? You get presents, except they're free. It's so easy for us to get caught up in our circumstances and think, God, why are these pains and problems in my life? Why is this happening? Why do I deserve this? And I want to encourage you, God does not waste our pain and problems. He uses it all to grow us in faith, in dependency on him, and to better see his character revealed, not only from his faithfulness, But as we walk with him, we grow in that character so that others can see Jesus. And I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I want you to think about the times where God has given you strength to walk faithfully despite your circumstances. Have you grown more near to him? Have you felt his presence more deeply in those times than you did in times of plenty? When you're uncomfortable... When you're hurting, when you're desperate, isn't it true that God is more real to us in those moments than when life is going the exact way that we want it to? This is the beauty of who God is. When we go back to the Garden of Eden, Adam learns after naming all the animals that he's what? He's alone. He's alone. And so God puts him into a deep sleep. And when Adam wakes up, and I always wondered this, it had to be like Christmas morning for God as the dad. He's like, hold on, Adam. Hold on. All right, Eve, come on out. (laughs) And what is Adam's response? Bone of my bone. Flesh of my flesh. Oh, this one was made for me, the perfect compliment. He was ecstatic. The best Christmas gift ever. And a chapter later. (laughs) God asks Adam this question. Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat from? And Adam's response is, It was the woman you gave me. Now we laugh at this. Who's Adam blaming? Oh boy. He's blaming God. 
and how easy it is for us in the midst of pain and problems to start blame shifting onto God. If you're all sovereign, if you can move Caesar Augustus, if you brought your son, you can get me out of and you fill in the blank. And yet the reality is, is that God did not even provide his own son an end to be born in, but instead allowed the savior of the world to be born into a manger, a feeding trough for animals. Nor did he spare the life of his son when he was on the cross. He allowed him to endure not only the pain and suffering that came physically, not only the pain and problems that came emotionally from abandonment of his friends or the betrayal of his own people, but he endured his father's wrath on our behalf so that we could be forgiven of our sins. God did not waste Jesus's pain and problems, and he does not waste our pain and problems. Church family, if you are in the midst of hurting, I cannot promise you your circumstances will change. But I know for a fact that God doesn't waste the season that you're in. It's his desire for you to grow in dependency on him so that he can reveal more of who he is to you and through you for others to see. How many of you remember the story of Job? Well, that's it. Job found himself with a lot of pain and problems, didn't he? He lost his entire family, all his wealth, which by the way, he was the wealthiest man on the earth. Everything around him crumbled. And we get some insight to what is going on. What Job didn't see during his day. That there was something bigger. There was a bigger picture happening. There was a conversation between God and Satan. And God going, consider my servant Job. Watch his faithfulness. And Job remains faithful through this time. But Job has some questions for God. How many of you have ever had questions for God? Yeah, for sure. And here's God's response. It's in Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 11. I want all of us to read this in a big, loud, thundering voice. What's not up here first is God tells Job, he says, brace yourself like a man. I'm about to respond to your questions. Now, all together, nice and loud. Where were you? What supports its foundations? Last one. God says, who are you to ask me, the creator of the universe, what I'm doing 
with your life. Who are you to question that? And here's what I love. We could take this and go, man, God really puts Job in his place. I hope he doesn't put me in my place. And the reality of our lives is what? It's going to happen. He's going to put us in our place. But here's how he does it. Adam and Eve have sinned. They've transgressed God's command. The only command that they were given. Don't eat from this tree. And they blow it. And yet in verse 21. In Genesis chapter 3. What does God make for them to cover their nakedness? He makes them skins. He takes the innocent life of an animal. Sheds its blood in order to cover Adam and Eve. Giving us an amazing picture of Jesus Christ to come. When we consider Job, Job didn't understand what was going on in his life. And yet God meets him where he is and he responds to Job. He speaks to him. He comforts him. And even though Job's immediate circumstances are not changed, God remains faithful even in the midst of his pain and sorrow. Whatever pain and problems you're experiencing today, lean more deeply into the hope of Jesus. Cling to his word and to his promises. Because here's the truth. Even in the lowest places, Jesus meets us. Even in the lowest places, Jesus meets us. We literally serve a creator. Who makes beauty from ashes. We have a savior. Who that understands your frustration. And your suffering. Not only does God call us to grow in our difficult circumstances. But he himself knows what it's like. When we're tempted to blame God. When we're tempted to question him. Go back to Christmas. The son of God was placed into a feeding trough. Pain and problems? You bet. Now look at the contrast between Caesar Augustus and Jesus. One clawing for power in the known world. Willing to divorce and remarry and divorce and remarry. Willing to kill his own closest friends. Conquering humanity. By crushing nations, by implementing something called Pax Romana, Roman peace, which basically meant get in line or get dead and everything will be very peaceful. And then you see the savior of the world who meets humanity in the lowest place from a feeding trough, the one who has all power. The one who created all things. And instead of pomp and circumstance. Instead of crushing people. He does not come to condemn. But instead to save. John 3.17. And we recognize. That in our lowest places. This is where Jesus meets us. Consider ourselves. When we often get into these low places, we run to pleasure. It could be drinking. 
It could be gambling. It could be pornography. It could be investing into things that we don't need or we don't have the finances for. All for the purpose of making us feel good. We might pursue power where we're struggling to be a husband at home. And so we dive into our work in order to be lifted up at least somewhere. Or to be a woman who feels like she's not valued or worth something. And so she grabs on to a career in order to have a name somewhere. For many of us, it's self-pity. Living in a world where everything revolves around us. It's all about me. And may you be encouraged that if you find yourself in this Christmas season discouraged, depressed, destitute, that this Christmas season, Jesus is able to meet you in your lowest place. Consider some of the scriptures. The Apostle Paul, before he was Paul, he was known as Saul the Pharisee, and he was really good at doing what? persecuting Christians and not just persecuting them like on social media of like I unfriend you it's not persecution by the way persecution like killing Christians arresting people and throwing them in prison for sharing the good news and Saul is on his way to Damascus murdering and having these thoughts of murdering people when Jesus meets him in his lowest place Jonah, running from God, finds himself in the belly of a whale. And who meets him there? Oh, it's God who meets him there. Think about Rahab, the prostitute. She's a prostitute in Jericho. One of the sworn enemies of God's people standing in their way of inheriting the promised land. And God meets Rahab and makes her part of his story and his lineage. Ruth, a Moabite, not of the nation of Israel. God meets her in her lowest place. Her husband is dead. Her mother-in-law has to go back to Israel. And God meets her right where she is. Church family, do not be discouraged when you're at your lowest point. Because even in your lowest points, that's where Jesus meets us. And we see that lived out. That he was willing to be born and laid into a feeding trough, into a manger. You still with me this morning? Verse 8. Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David, a savior who is Christ or the Messiah, the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. This will be the sign to you. This is what you're looking for. This is what's going to be in neon lights. This is what you're not going to be able to miss about the promised one, the coming savior, the creator of the universe. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying 
in a manger. That was the sign. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host or God's armies praising God and saying glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill to men. When we consider this scene, Mary and Joseph have now had Jesus. He's been laid in these strips of cloth, not a fancy blanket, not a cute little onesie with a beanie with a little thing on top for Christmas, simply swaddling clothes, the same things they would wrap newborn lambs in. And they lay him in this feeding trough. And at the same time, there are shepherds outside of Bethlehem watching their flocks by night. Um, in general, in ancient Middle Eastern culture, Shepherds would be outside from about March into November. But because Israel does have a climate very similar to Southern California, you can end up with very warm winters or you can end up with what we're dealing and suffering with now. <laughs> 40 degrees. And the rest of the country is cursing us for our good weather. Um, we don't know exactly when Jesus was born by the month. It's possible he could have been a December baby. A lot of scholars think that it would have been earlier in the year. But nevertheless, there were shepherds watching their flocks by night. And isn't it interesting that God chooses to reveal that the Messiah has been born to a group of shepherds? And if you know anything about shepherds from ancient culture, they were not exactly upstanding citizens. Number one, they lived with animals 24-7. Not many people wanted to be around them. They were often a dishonest bunch because they were nomadic, which means they promised to pay here, and then by the next morning they were gone and their debts wouldn't be paid. As a matter of fact, they were so looked down upon, even in Israel, that a shepherd could not testify in a court of law because their character was so questionable. And yet God meets us where? In our lowest places. And it's to these men that he chooses to reveal the greatest news that the world has ever heard. The Messiah has finally come. This dark and quiet night is interrupted and the glory of God appears, frightening them. And I bet you that was an understatement. It would have been terrifying. But here's the beauty of the angel's message is that the good tidings of Christmas is the gospel. The good tidings of Christmas is the gospel. It's his great love for us. This is why Christmas is so important to us. Is because it is the gospel. It's God's good news that what he had promised for thousands of years has finally come to fruition. That he is faithful. That he means what he says. So that when we think of lights, when we think of gifts, when we think of whatever it is we're going to get in our stocking or the family that we're supposed to have over or that three hour drive to L.A. that we have to make, we're supposed to be reminded of the good tidings of Christmas, which is the gospel. It's the life, the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's his great love for us. This 
is Christmas. This is why we celebrate. This is why we go through all the trouble to create a paperless Evite to send out by text, for goodness sakes. Not because we want more people just sitting in here, but because we know that people need the good news because it is the power to save. And here is the angelic message, the heavenly message from the angels. The very first thing is don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's an invitational announcement. It's an announcement of joy and good tidings. It's God's grace, his mercy, his fulfillment of his promise. It has nothing to do with wrath and judgment. It has everything to do with inviting people into his family through his son, Jesus Christ. I think sometimes when the angel, and this is on multiple occasions, both in the Old Testament and New Testament, they begin these good tidings with do not be afraid because the first response to seeing God's holy angel is what? I'm dead. And yet, do not be afraid. And I want you to think about this question. Are you afraid of God speaking into your life and you actually hearing him? Are you afraid of God speaking into your life and you actually hearing him? I think sometimes when we consider that if we are walking with Jesus, if we're more than a Sunday Christian, If God's word becomes important to us to where we digest it throughout the week, where it becomes the standard for our life, where we begin to apply what we learn on Sundays, on Wednesday nights, on Tuesday nights, on Thursday nights, into our life, are we ever afraid that God may speak something into our life in which we go, oh, now I have to be obedient because I can hear his voice? I think so often... We hear people say, I I just don't hear from God. Are you in his word? Because that's how he speaks to us. Are you in fellowship? Are you in a community group? Are you a part of men's or women's ministry or young adults ministry? Because this is how he speaks to us. When our heart and our mind are focused on Jesus... It's our will that begins to align with his will to where he goes, no matter what I tell you, you don't have to be afraid. It may be scary to be obedient. But the things that he calls us to is for our own benefit and for his glory. The first message is do not be afraid. The second part that the angel tells these shepherds is it's good news for all people. Everybody say all people. people. Listen, this is so important that it's good news for all people. Our world is obsessed with trying to be inclusive for all people and in their inclusivity. I don't know if that's a word. There it is. (laughs) In our attempt at unity. What do we end up doing? Oh my goodness, segregation, division. We accept everyone except the people who don't agree with us, which is not all people. This was good news for who? For all people. 
It doesn't matter male or female. It doesn't matter your family background or your education. It doesn't matter your skin color. What matters is that the good news, the gospel, is for all people. Sinners of the worst kind have literally been invited to come share at the king of the universe's table. Think about how God models this and who he gives the message to. These stinky, smelly, dishonest shepherds. And God goes, I want you to be the ones to carry this message to other people. You want to use me? Do you know what I've done in my life? Do you know what people think of me? And God goes, yeah, I know all those things. And I'm calling you because this is good news for all people. The third part of this message is the savior we need is here. The savior we need is here. Think about this time period. For the Romans, Caesar Augustus, when he rose to power and he had actually established himself as emperor, there was tremendous peace in the Roman Empire. He conquered his enemies. He brought economic stability. He brought more possessions into Rome. Money was flowing. People were flourishing. Even the, the foreign nations that they were conquering, many of them didn't mind Rome. The Jews weren't one of those people, but many of them didn't mind Rome. And yet, isn't that the world today? Aren't we constantly seeking after political leaders who will benefit our pocketbooks? Who will help our businesses? Don't we flee to states that have no income tax? We laugh, but it's true. And yet what we see in Jesus' day was that Caesar Augustus may have brought economic stability. He may have even stopped wars, but he couldn't address the depths of the human soul, the darkness that plagued people, that they were still trapped in their addictions and in their sin And when they would have all their stuff still found themselves troubled and could not receive enough in order to have peace in their hearts. The savior that we need is here and it's in Jesus. Think about our world today. We come up with mandates to try to fix problems, trying to force people to do things against their will. We come up with vaccines in the hope to end a pandemic, round 42, here we go. (laughs) This world is looking for a savior and that savior is already here, it's Jesus. We look for presidents, for prime ministers, for governors, for senators. We look for community leaders. We look for nuclear treaties. The world is looking everywhere except at the Messiah who is already here. Chris, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Now, I made this mistake one time. How hot is this? Thank you, Tal. You're so great. Ah, new life. Visit Chris at the coffee table after service. Thank you very much, brother. The world is looking everywhere for a savior, but he's already here. This is Christmas. 
It's what Christmas is about. The fourth thing that the angel tells the shepherds. He says this. Verse 14. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. God and man reconciled. God and man reconciled. Sometimes it's hard for us to understand the magnitude and weight that sin has had in our life. There's no question that when we royally mess up, we feel that weight. We're like, oh my gosh, God, I can't believe I did that. But how often do we actually think of the small things in our life and just those small things? An angry thought against another brother or sister. Exaggerating a story. Fudging one number. Explosive anger at our kids. Withdrawal and not speaking to our spouse in order to punish them. Just one thing separates us for eternity from Christ the King. We are disqualified. We do not measure up to his standard of glory. And yet through this baby in a manger, through this angelic announcement to the shepherds, all of that can change. But it's an invitation in which the angels are telling these shepherds, come and see that God has done what he said that he would do to reconcile man to himself. Come and see. He doesn't force us. He doesn't threaten us under pain of death. He simply invites us to be part of this reconciliation, which can only come through Jesus Christ, our Lord. It's God who brings true peace. He is the propitiation. He is the substitute, the sacrifice. And he's the one who paid the penalty for our sins. Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 and 22 Can you read this for me nice and loud on your screens? You who were once. One more. once separated from God because of whose sin? Because of our sin. Not because of anything he did, but because of what we did. And yet, because he sends his son through the death of Jesus Christ, we are now told that we are holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. That is radical. Even to stand before another human being and for them to go, oh, I love you unconditionally. Some of us inside go, if you only knew. If you only knew what I have done. If you only knew what I am doing. If you only know what I'm capable of. And God says, before me, 
because of what I've done for you through Jesus, you are holy and blameless and without fault. Doesn't the world long for that? Haven't you been given the good news just as the shepherds were to begin bringing that to other people? Christmas is the reminder that through Jesus, that baby that was laid in a manger, we have peace and reconciliation with God now and through eternity. Last section of scripture, verse 15 through 20. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now, when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all those who heard it marveled at those things which were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen as it was told them. What is your response to Christmas? What is your response to Christmas? Think about those statistics that I gave at the beginning of the message. Is your response to Christmas getting caught up in the rat race? This is not to shame anyone, but you'll be in good company. How many of you still have Christmas shopping to do? How many of you are like, no, you just preached the sermon. We don't need material possessions. I'm not. (laughs) Don't bring that back on me. Does Christmas bring stress to your life? Does it bring strife within your family? Does it bring frustration? Because if it does, it's okay. We live in a fallen and broken world. And we're as broken as the next people are. Nothing to be ashamed of. And yet I also want to ask you this question. In the midst of your stress, in the midst of the strife with your family, do you have peace knowing that you've been reconciled to God? That's what I believe God is calling us to. It's not a stress-free Strife-free life. I wish it was. That would be amazing. But the reality is, is that when Jesus meets us in those lowest places, our response to those things should be, man, this stinks. This is tough. And what I need the most has already been taken care of. Help me to start from there in order to respond to what happens at Christmas. Here's what some of the shepherds' responses were. When it came to Christmas, the first was a sense of urgency, a sense of urgency. Once the angels leave, it says that the angels make or the shepherds make haste. They don't waste any time. We definitely experience this as the Christmas season gets deeper into Christmas, even Christmas. We start rushing around a lot more. There is a sense of urgency. But what about a sense of urgency in regards to sharing the good news of Jesus? 
Are we concerned with people's souls the same way we are about what we gift them for Christmas under the tree? We are called to have a sense of urgency. It's more of a mindset than it is a busyness. This doesn't mean you fill your calendars with, okay, I'm sharing the gospel for seven hours today, go into the street corner. No, it's a mindset in which we go, Lord, help me to be intentional so that when I'm at line, in, in line at Target, that I take the time to look the checker in the eye and say, how's your day going today? And to actually listen to the response so that you can follow up with another question of, hey, I'm really sorry to hear that. Can I encourage you? And I'm thankful that you're here serving me. Or when you're on the phone with an in-law who's complaining about all the food prep that they have to do or the drive they have to make, instead of getting annoyed, you can say, hey, I'm so thankful that you're willing to sacrifice in order to come to our house this year. It means a lot. It's the beginning of bridge building for the purpose of sharing something greater. And to have a sense of urgency is to be intentional in that every mundane moment of our life, God may be using it to move heaven and earth to rescue that person's soul, to encourage them, to help them through their day. The second thing in which the shepherds respond to is sharing the good news with others. They see the baby Jesus. Everything that the angels told them has come true. And they begin to widely spread the good news. This is the response that we are called to. The gospel is meant to be shared. There is no such thing as private faith. There is no such thing as, well, I don't really talk about faith at work. If you don't, it's a problem. And I'm not saying you go in guns blazing asking people if they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But for goodness sakes, if you get half an hour for lunch, hey, Jim, you want to have lunch with me? And just get to know their story. Because if you get to know their story, they're going to ask you about what? Freedom to share the gospel. This is how God has impacted my life. This is where I would be without him. And this is where he has me because of what he's done. Share the good news with your family, your friends, your coworkers, and your neighbors. Romans 1.16 says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone. Everyone say everyone. <laughs> for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Do not be ashamed of the gospel. Your response to Christmas should be sharing the good news. Pastor Dave said it yesterday. It's, it seems trivial, but it's not. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. That was a failure. <clears throat> Happy holidays. That's so much better. The last response of these shepherds which to me is one of the most powerful. It's one of the values that we have here at the Mission Church. Embrace the call of God upon your life. Embrace the call of God upon your life. Here's what I love. Look at verse 20. Then the shepherds returned. Returned where? Shepherding. Returned to their sheep. They didn't get a new job. 
They didn't get a new life direction. They didn't start selling Bitcoin instead of shepherding their flocks. They went back to what they were called to. And yet they went back differently. Look at verse 20. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told to them. When we embrace the call of God upon our life, it simply means that what he's called us to do, what he's gifted us, the talents, the passions, that we see that as a means in order to share the good news and be a testimony of Jesus Christ right where we are between our own two feet. It doesn't require a different career in most cases. It doesn't require that you go to Bible college or get a seminary degree. What it means is that you go back to where you were called with a gospel lens to see the people you work with as souls instead of life suckers. The kids that you steward, to see them as little ones that need to be discipled, not just so you can get to the end of your day, put them to bed and be done with them. To see your husband or your wife as someone to be built up, to be encouraged, to be pointed to Jesus. Because it's your marriage that is a testimony of Christ's love for the church. If you're single or divorced or widowed. To take the circumstances you are in. And to share the good news with others. Who simply want to sit with somebody just like them. Embrace the call of God upon your life. These shepherds returned changed men. And changed men change men. Changed men, this applies to women too, change women. Because we're passionate about the calling that has been put on our life. To make disciples, to share the good news, to have a sense of urgency. Because this is Christmas. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your holy word, for the truth of the gospel, that Christmas is Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, come in the lowliest place to the lowliest people in order to meet us where we are so that you can lead us to where we need to be. Lord, may we be men and women who embrace the call of God upon our life who see things differently, not just from a worldly perspective, not just from an economic lens, but Lord, through the gospel, the good news, the good tidings of great joy, which is Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. So Lord, be glorified this morning. May we go from this place seeking to share with others what has been shared with us. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. You may freely share this message with others as long as you don't charge for it. Support for these broadcasts comes from your generous donations that allow us to give away our materials for free. To participate with us, please visit our website at themissionchurch.net. God bless. God bless.